she's always been the type of person that just says things and she just speaks her mind. I guess that has a little bit to do with not having a formal education. Everybody. My name is Jonathan. And I'm James. And this is season eight of the Body Serve Tennis Podcast. Welcome back, or welcome for the very first time. We always like to open our seasons with a, a kind of aperitif, if you will. Well, maybe not always, <laughs> but the last few seasons. And where we were headed with or ideas for this episode were com- ugh, that direction was completely derailed when a listener gave us a suggestion. Slid into our DMs, thank you, Cyrus, and was like, hey, this would be interesting. And we were like, you know what? You're right. Yes. So we cannot take credit for this idea, but it was perfection. The 1999 WTA season is the subject of our episode, and it's been much talked about as a watershed season in the history of women's tennis, a true changing of the guard in one of the very few periods in history where you could legitimately call it a changing of the guard. And so much of what we know about tennis now kind of formed during that year. It was almost the perfect bridge to where we are, where we've been, at least through the duration of this podcast. The thing about the 1999 season, like you said, it's much talked about, but... There was still so much that I did not know happened. And even if I knew it happened, I didn't know it happened then. Doing the reading and watching videos, I'm like, what? This happened in 1999 as well? That's crazy. For example, you may have noticed that we're using a retro intro for this episode. The OG TBS intro. Mm-hmm. So many moments like that one, like the formal education line, have been memed. Since that happened, can you imagine if social media had been around in 99? It would have been a god-awful mess. How many people would have been just running around the place, having been scalded by being memed about their lack of formal education? (laughs) There would have been so many people running around wigless in 1999. (laughs) Right. That intro was... Back then, we had just started the show and we wanted an intro and... We didn't know if we could actually use the audio from that press conference. So it's actually me reading it and chipmunking it. Yeah, yeah, like Kanyeing it. Oh, is that, that's what You know, it is? back when he did that chipmunk hip hop in like 05, everybody did that. No, oh, I didn't really know him then, <laughs> as I similarly do not know him now. There's so much to talk about culturally about the 99 season. Tennis-wise, every slam brought you history-making events, right? Every slam winner was pivotal. Every slam event had multiple classic matches and said something about the history of the sport. And in some cases, where we were culturally, setting the scene, you know, tennis-wise, in 98, we've got Lindsay Davenport and Martina Hingis facing off over who's the best player in the world. Lindsay finished 98 narrowly as the number one player as the title leader, winning six titles, and coming off her first Grand Slam at the U.S. Open. Mm -hmm. I mean, she had been a good player for a long time, but 98 was her true breakout moment. 
And you phrase it here that her and Martina were the two obvious best players of the year, but that really only came into focus toward the end of the year with Lindsay winning the U.S. Open. What we had in 1998 was an absolute standoff between the old guard and the the younger generation. Mm -hmm. Because you had the throwback French Open tournament where Arancha Sanchez-Vicario beat Monica Seles. You had Yana Novotna winning Wimbledon finally, at long last, casting aside the demons of Wimbledon's past. And so while Martina took the Australian Open and Lindsay took the US Open to bookend the year, right smack in the middle were the legends of the game of that era still putting their hand up. And meanwhile, you have Steffi Graf sidelined with injury for a lot of the year, but still winning titles. I think, you know, people were ready to count her out, but she had already come back from so many major injuries through the mid-90s to go and win three slams in a year. It was impossible to say that she was done. But people tried. Oh, indeed. As they do, they will do to this day. Venus and Serena were superstars at that point. Venus finally won her first title in 98, winning three that year. Serena still titleless. But these are, you know, some more of the stories that are dominating tennis. Anna Kornikova is... The newest iteration of the great white hope in sport. But bringing, you might say, unprecedented popular attention onto women's tennis. And we look back and we can criticize the ways that the sport talked about Anna, the ways that she was just kind of slammed for how she looked, despite all the... Uh, all the benefits, the financial benefits that came with the way she looked, her tennis was really unfairly criticized. But you also want to connect the dots between what was happening in tennis as kind of a reaction to or can be explained by the general context of what was going on in the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, looking back, we were in our early, very early teens in 1999, just starting high school. And I was trying to think about what was going on in the world that spilled over into tennis. And culturally, one of the things that was going on is the pop explosion, like the teen pop, Britney, NSYNC, Christina Aguilera, Backstreet Boys, all that. And a lot of what came with that teen pop explosion, especially the girl pop explosion, is constant and obsessive criticism of people like Britney and Christina. Recently, the culture at large has done a fresh look at how we, we talked about these young women in 1999, but at the time, the way that they were spoken about was so incredibly misogynistic, and gleefully so, right? It was, it was fun. It was fun to make fun of Britney and Christina and call them, you know, prepackaged, lame, sluts, Inauthentic. The, right. And this was happening by other women as well. So many other women took up the charge. And we kind of see how that played out with Kornikova and the way her career was talked about, her actual tennis. She was slandered mm. a lot during her career. Maybe there's not a direct corollary here between teen pop and women's tennis, but you can see some of these cultural battles being fought in tennis as well. There was slut-shaming, there was homophobia, there was criticism about women's bodies by men and by other women. Policing of what was allowed to be okay within the sport. Mm -hmm. This was also the year of the United States winning the Women's World Cup 
the Girls of Summer team. And that presented a very specific type of female athlete that little girls should want to emulate. And a lot of female athletes didn't uh, fulfill that archetype. It also presented an existential challenge to the WTA Tour because during the 1998 into the 1999 seasons, they were without a title sponsor. And one of the reasons that was given why it was so difficult for the WTA Tour to find a title sponsor was because not only was there a decline in people playing tennis in general, specifically in the United States, but because of the rise of women's soccer, football, young girls were no longer looking to tennis as the sport to get into. They were looking to play football. Now, the prize money that these women were making in 1998 and 1999, it, it told us that tennis was still the lucrative sport for girls to get into. It just so happens that it's a lot more restrictive to get into. It takes a lot more resources. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot more money, time, travel. Super puzzling to me looking back about why it was such a struggle to get title sponsorship. Going back to your argument about how who run the world, teen girls at the time. Mm -hmm. The WTA was uniquely positioned to ride those coattails. They had been coming off of the Capriati, the Salises at the start of the decade. And here come Martina Hingis, the Williams sisters, Anna Kornikova, a large group of entertaining, compelling young women that the tour wasn't able to capitalize on. Mm -hmm. You know, we look back at Fresh Eyes to the, the teen pop, to all different fads, and we know that throughout history, the interests of young girls are always written off as insignificant, silly, fake. Anything that young girls take up in masses pisses people off, right? The Beatles. Like, right. And in, in the late 90s, you can see the whole, what was that? Uh, oh, like Pop Punk and Limp Bizkit and Corn and all these angry, angry white guys. So many of them were obsessively talking about Britney Spears all the time. It is amazing how she was at the front and center of their minds because she was fake and they were real. And these same young men gawked at Anna Kornikova and then the next breath, or the same breath, talked about how shit her tennis was. <laughs> right, right. And, of course, this is 1999. This is the end of a century. The fond de siècle. Did you know that? I don't even know what that is. So you're, <laughs> so, you're flexing on me right now and I don't know what the purpose of mm, it is. I know... My French pronunciation is not great. I did not study French. But this concept of fond de siècle was popularized in the turn of the 20th century. And it was kind of trying to describe the cultural phenomenon of this idea of decadence, anxiety. At the time, it was seen as the degeneration of culture. And just the heightened anxiety that comes with the turn of a century. Also, Y2K. Yes. So turning of the 21st century, there was a lot of weird anxiety about Y2K. There, We were on the precipice of massive foundational technological changes, which they were in the 19th century as well. We didn't know how it was going to change our world, but we were you know, very close to Web 2.0, social media, smartphones. It changed sports fundamentally. And in 99, we're sort of in that innocent phase. Like we, we didn't know what was coming. What I think is interesting is part of this concept 
of the the end of the century is that events take on a heightened meaning. So we look at the events of 1999 and maybe, maybe we imbue more meaning than they would have had otherwise. I get where you're going with that, mm-hmm. but this season was lit. Oh, it was. And maybe the people playing found more meaning in tennis because of this phenomenon. We'll get into why the 1999 season seemed worthy of doing an entire episode on it. But I want you now to touch a little bit on the lack of sponsorship for the WTA Tour at that time. In 1998, the WTA was without a sponsor. And they paid their own $8 million in operating costs. This is unusual for a sporting organization. And according to, you know, the quote-unquote analysts, the financial folks, sponsors had questions about whether women's tennis was viable, whether this success was sustainable. Even in an exciting year like 1999 when they had superstars, when they had people watching the sport, the Wall Street Journal reported that year that in two of the past three years, the women's title matches at Wimbledon had more viewers than the men's. The women's final in the 1998 U.S. Open outrated the men by 15%. And despite this, despite the obvious, uh, not only the rating successes, but all of these superstars that you could market to women and girls, sponsors were still a little bit queasy about sponsoring the WTA. What I found interesting is that these nameless analysts also cited the ongoing threats from women's tennis to boycott major events because of the lack of equal prize money. How about that? So in 1999, at the end of the year, they finally signed a five-year deal with Sanex for a reported $40 million. Now, Sanex is not exactly Sony Ericsson. Uh, (laughs) It's not exactly Apple, but it was... Uh, a European-based beauty and skincare company that was a subsidiary of the American Sara Lee Corporation. And you may remember when the tour was called the Sanex WTA Tour. At the time, I had no idea what that company did. Uh, This sponsorship deal with the WTA actually ended two years later due to uh, a supposed host of problems, one of which may have been a lack of promotion of the brand, a lack of top players wearing the Sanex logo, And the fact that Sanex was only a title sponsor of tournaments and only allowed to have promotional materials outside of North America. What I found interesting here is that we are hearing and seeing the same patterns that have repeated themselves over the decades. Some nameless, ambiguous source, we know it's a man, will say, well, these are the reasons why women's sport isn't marketable. These are the reasons why nobody will watch. These numbers here tell us. That at this formative time, this bridge to this new era of women's tennis, which could have been a big launching pad, a jumping off spot, we have the numbers that the women were outperforming the men. After the Australian Open in 1999, Tim Layden for Sports Illustrated wrote, Pity the men's tour. They're good players who are duller than oatmeal. This was after Thomas Engfist and Yevgeny Kafelnikov played the final. The men's tour was in a shambles. Andre Agassi didn't come back as the savior until the French Open of that year. Yeah, he saved that season for the men. He played some classics. Pete was injured for a lot of that time. And the men's tour was in a real transition period from the late 90s until Federer. Mm -hmm. So you have this prodigy, 
dominating the 1997 season. You have the big names of yesteryear playing well in 1998. You have the GOAT coming back to prominence in 1999. And you have this slew of young, exciting players, not least of which Venus and Serena Williams. The numbers bored out. If you knew anything about tennis, you could see what was happening. And yet, like decades before, like decades to come, we were told that nobody wants to watch. It is not worth a measly $8 million a year to be the title sponsor. Like, it's it's crazy. Mm-hmm. While we're doing reading up for this episode, you came across this quote from uh, John Wertheim in 2002. So not specifically about the 1999 season, but the way he described the emergence of Daniela Hantukova at that time was instructive as to what women had to deal with in tennis. And also that folks clearly didn't understand what they had at the moment. So I'll read uh, the lead from the story. With the Williams sisters running roughshod over the field and Anna Kornikova routinely getting bounced from tournaments before she can create a stir, women's tennis is suddenly hard up for another formidable player and a new glamour girl. It may get both in the form of Slovakia's Daniela Hantukova. A slender, blonde, six-footer who seems to be all legs, Hantukova, 19, has game to match her gams. I was struck at first by uh, that we wouldn't typically see this type of writing these days, and we certainly wouldn't see John Wertheim write that way now. I was surprised to see his name attached to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I hope it's not a mistake of the SI vault, you know, that it, it was misfiled or something, because I was so shocked that I thought that that can't be him. With the Williams sisters running roughshod. So you have two players dominating tennis, right? You have two. But we need the Great White Hope to come and just fix things. To settle settle the course, steady the ship, because this is going on too long. This is too much. <laughs> What's shocking to me, it's not that this is saying there isn't anybody doing well on the WTA Tour. It's just that it isn't the right kind of well. Yeah. That's Basically, the way this is written. You're just saying they're not hot. When when you really boils down to it, you're saying they're not marketable because you don't think they're hot. Or people don't think they're hot. Because they're black. Right. Bottom line. And although this is from O2, it you know, it popped up in my research and it's it tells you that we look back and we see that era that you know, late nineties, early two thousands, we see that era as a golden era of women's tennis. At the time, some reporters said, wow, look at what look at what we're witnessing. But a lot of reporters were still saying, ugh, this just isn't good enough. Where are the stars? And looking back, if you can't find the stars in that era, we are screwed. Can you imagine the money that would have been thrown at the WTA if, say, for example, there were two sisters of the ilk of Venus and Serena but they were con- quote-unquote conventionally good-looking and white. Mm-hmm. Need we say more? <laughs> like, we would not be sitting here having this discussion right now. Why were people watching in 1999? How about we pivot there? We've said that this season is important. Why? Well, we've got a whole bullet list here of reasons why this season <laughs> was important. You can pause the recording and see if you can name all, if not just some, of the women who did this. But in 1999, 
there were 15 women who had either previously won a Grand Slam or would go on to win a Grand Slam who won a singles title that year. 15 of them. For comparison, I went and looked at the 2003 season, which seemed to be a, a pretty big season in my mind's eye as well. And that year, there were only nine. So of the 15, there was Serena, Venus, Salas, Hingis, Enna, Capriati, Novotna, Sanchez Vicario, Davenport, Graf, Conchita Martinez, Mesquina, Kleisters, Moresmo, and Mary Pierce. We also had future legends of the game winning their first WTA titles. Serena won her first title in Paris that year. Kim Kleisters won her first title that year. Amelie Moresmo won her first title. And we also had Kleisters and Enna making their debuts at the Grand Slam level in 1999. Venus Williams inches closer to that next step, winning six titles on the year, repeating at Miami and Oklahoma City, winning Hamburg and Rome. Still no major, but close. 1999, of course, sees Serena Williams winning her first of many Grand Slam titles. Yana Novotna retires from the game. Steffi Graf retires from the game, believing it changed forever. Did I mention Justine Enna won her first title that year as well? Mm-hmm. Venus and Serena win their first of 14 Grand Slams in doubles. Amelie Moresmo made her first Grand Slam final in 1999, and it kicked off the year in women's tennis with an almighty shitstorm, with all the mess that she had to deal with at that tournament based on her coming out and her peers referring to her as half a man. Three of the four Grand Slam champions that year won both the singles and doubles titles. That is uh, something you don't see very often anymore. The only exception is Roland Garros, where Martina Hingis was the runner-up in both singles and doubles. This was still the era where the top women all played doubles. Novotna, Arancha, well, except for Steffi, really. Yeah, but... Lindsay, the Williams sisters, Kim Kleisters, who was just a kid at this point. And this list that we just went through doesn't even account for all the messy bits. All the, the snark, the snide comments, sometimes the downright mean behavior of some of these women toward each other. And no doubt egged on and encouraged by much of the press. We want to talk about some of the kind of the prevailing themes of the 99 season, trying to make sense of the season. And then we will go through each slam, kind of take you through the season chronologically, not like a year in review, but highlighting the really exciting bits for us. One of the biggest themes of coverage you'll find is about Venus and Serena Williams and not if, but when they would take over the tour. It was, even then, seen as an inevitability. And not always as a good inevitability. Right. You know, there was there was certainly a lot of celebration, but there were a lot of... Uh, there were a lot of snide comments sort of thrown in there at the same time. A lot of doubt about the fitness of Richard Williams as not only a coach, but as a father. There was a lot of resistance to Venus and Serena... And some of the other power players that were coming up because they would change the game. Mm -hmm. And by changing the game, what was feared was that women's tennis would become too powerful. Right. Not in a Martina Hingis uh, being wary that, oh my God, I'm going to get blown off the court. Like, how will I compete? It's like, well, 
this is not the way we as men like to watch women perform for us. Or that tennis would somehow lose its artistry, its strategy, uh, the aesthetics of the game if it became too powerful. Okay, but then it's also wrapped up in this fear that we won't be able to sell women's tennis, that men won't want to watch it. Well, you're already telling us that men don't want to watch it, that it's not marketable as it is, so make up your mind. (laughs) So why do you care? I mean, the Williams sisters were clearly marketable. They were on a million different magazine covers. They were being talked about constantly on the news. But a lot of people were sore about their confidence. And man, did they have it in spades at that time. At times, and this is not a bad thing, they were like, I think I'm the best. I don't think I should be losing to any of these people. And I know that, so I'm going to do it. And you just don't hear that very often. So they were seen as brash, as loud, as obnoxious. And there was this real resistance that the kind of the current top women had to form an alliance against them. Mm -hmm. Martina Hingis had that unabashed confidence as well. She talked about all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah. She said all kinds of crazy shit. But the reaction to it was not the same. No. But on the court throughout 1999, you're seeing the promise of Richard Williams come to fruition in a very real way. Serena wins Indian Wells, her second title, beating Steffi Graf, which is one of the clearest changing of the guard moments in tennis history, if you could ever have one. They only played twice, both this year, and they split their matches. She goes on a 16-match winning streak, finally losing to her sister in the final of Miami. Venus had won Miami the previous year, Venus had also repeated in Oklahoma City in the same week that Serena won the title in Paris, because at the time they were trying to play tournaments in different cities at the same time if they could swing it to reduce the pressure on the family. At the time, Indian Wells was not of the same stature as it is now. In 1999, the Miami tournament was considered the quote-unquote fifth slam, the Mm -hmm. biggest tournament outside of the four slams. And Venus had laid claim to that tournament by winning it a second time (laughs) in 1999. And so you have both sisters competing in this big final. And Venus is still still a cut above in terms of results at this point. She's still expected to be the one to have the big bust-out moment first. But it is not what you may have thought that Serena kind of came out of nowhere in 1999. She was winning tournaments. She was having big wins. She was making deep runs in big tournaments. She was beating top-name players. By the time Serena wins the U.S. Open in September, it's not a huge shock. And while she struggled with injury and some inconsistency in 98 and 99, she strung together the 16-match win streak. During that streak, she beat Lindsay, Martina, Monica, Steffi, Mary Pierce, Amanda Kutzer. You could have left off Amanda Kutzer. Well, she was a top-ten player. Like Okay, but she still. was easily beatable at the time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And Serena said in that spring, I'm tired of losing to people I should beat. Whatever my potential is, I want to reach it now. Sure. But up until Miami, she had yet to win a set off Venus. Yes. On that Miami final, John Wertheim wrote, quote, The Sister Act final was yet another boon for the WTA Tour, which now has the most disparate collection of stars and rivalries in its history. Oh, there we go. There we go. What What was good... And clicking for John in 1999 that didn't click in 2002. (laughs) (laughs) This is why I said there were a lot of 
there was a lot of celebration and a lot of recognition that this was a really special time we were living through. And then there were still, you know, you still have to write about things. You still have to pick and make fun. And Well, this is what it boils down to. This is what <laughs> I chalk it up a lot of it to falling victim to the tired, lazy sport writing tropes. Right. Because which editor wants to get a column every week saying, oh, my God, this is amazing. This is perfect. I love it. It's just not that compelling. This was also the tournament, the Miami final, where the Welcome to the Williams Show sign made its debut (laughs) by Richard Williams. Yep. This year saw the third and fourth Venus versus Serena match. In Miami, Serena won her very first set against her sister, although losing, and she got her first win later in the year at the Grand Slam Cup. 99 was a good year for rivalries as well. You could argue that Lindsay and Venus was the biggest rivalry of that year, or you could make the case that it was still Lindsay and Martina. Yep. Either way, Lindsay was there. (laughs) For the next few years, Lindsay was going to be a player in whatever was going on on the WTA Tour. Heading into 1999, Lindsay had a 6-1 record against Venus, and then she beat her 6-4-6 love at the Australian Open, which then made it, what, 7-1? Lindsay absolutely dominated the U.S. hardcore stretch in 1998. She did extremely well in 99 as well. But you can see these American hardcore superstars form in the late 90s and kind of give birth to that U.S. Open series. Martina and Venus also did their thing together in 1999, building off of that 1997 U.S. Open final. And we also had the final two matches of the Celis graf rivalry. At the Australian Open, where Monica won, and then at the French Open, where Steffi won in the semis to get to the final. I think a big theme of 1999 was the spotlight, the increasing spotlight that was on Martina Hingis as the top player in the world, even if not in the rankings, in people's mind's eye. Because heading into 1999, she had made the final of all four slams in 97, coming one match shy of winning the Grand Slam, only losing to Eva Maioli at the French Open. She won three slams in 97. She won the Australian Open again in 1998. And she hadn't lost before the semifinal round of any slam since 1996. And she did these things when she was very, very young, right? She's 16 and 17 during this stretch. This for the WTA was the story of a prodigy gone right. We had seen so many cautionary tales with people like Capriati, with Andrea Yeager, with so many young women who were exploited or abused or simply didn't have the career that they were supposedly meant to. And Martina was a consistent, dominating force. She was really the only one who could compare to Monica Seles' dominance at a young age. She lost the number one ranking by a very small margin at the end of 98, but throughout 99, 2000, and 2001, she was ranked number one for long stretches. Even though it was clear to most who followed women's tennis that she was not the best player anymore. Or that although she was still reaching major finals, winning really important titles, there was a a clock ticking on her dominance. The 99 season was kind of a series of 
perhaps escalating PR blunders for the Hengist camp. And it was also, you know, it was a season of incredible achievements still. Winning the Australian Open for the third time in a row, making the final in all of the slams but one, winning important titles, but seeing that that top level slip a little mm. bit. Breaking with her mother briefly. Tim Layden wrote in 1998 after that US Open final that, quote, Hingis has suddenly become old at 17. <laughs> Which in 98, I feel like is a bit much. It's a lot. Yeah, because it, she's it, still... It's unkind. <laughs> she's still a teenager. She's still able, in theory, to bulk up, to put on mass, mm-hmm. to become physically stronger. It's not necessarily the end of the road. But we'll talk a bit more about her achievements on court during that year. But you know, starting in the Australian Open, she got a lot of bad press for being blatantly homophobic to Emily Moresmo. There was the absolute debacle of the French Open final. And then losing pretty convincingly to Serena Williams in the 99 US Open final. And losing in the first round of Wimbledon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Another theme of the 1999 season, naturally, with so many young players doing well... There was a lot of talk about their parents. Demir Dokic was thrown out of the Birmingham tournament and laid down in the middle of the road outside yelling and screaming. He was detained by police. And then that would have been you know, maybe not such a big deal, except his daughter Yelena Dokic goes on to beat Martina Hingis in the first round of Wimbledon a couple weeks later. And then that becomes a big story. We still had Jennifer Capriati's father, Stefano who was criticized at the time for allowing her to go pro at 13 and, quote, using her like an ATM. Jim Pierce was banned from tournaments for years after punching spectators, berating his daughter. She had to get a restraining order and assume fake identities. Samantha Stevenson came on the scene in 1999, mother of Alexandra Stevenson. If you recall, Alexandra made that run from qualifying to the semifinals of Wimbledon in 1999. And as she became more prominent, so too did her mother. And she expressed grave concerns about the rampant lesbianism on the WTA tour. And as you pointed out on this agenda, perhaps we can see the reason why Alexandra would be so keen on having tea with Margaret Court and regale us with fond memories of that on air. In no way do we know Alexandra's feelings on on any of those issues, but... uh... It just reminded me that Margaret Court was also someone who was afraid of the supposed aggressive lesbians in the women's locker room. This from Jimmy Arias, who was Monica Seles' coach at the time. Quote, Tennis parents have been nightmares from day one. And from what I've seen, they continue to be nightmares, except they've just taken it to a new level by living off their children. There's more money than ever to be had in women's tennis. And just the amount of abuse be it financial, emotional, physical, that we saw. And in some cases, we saw detailed many, many years later. It's it's shocking. And we know it still goes on. But then there were some tennis family relationships that seemed to work. The one that folks always talk about is Lindsay Davenport's parents. And Pam Shriver was quoted as saying that Lindsay's mom is one of the good tennis moms because I never see her. (laughs) (laughs) Because she's basically disinterested. The public thinks this now, but at the time, the Williams parents weren't considered some of the good ones. Right. Of course, Richard was seen as an eccentric. There was a lot of skepticism about his approach. But looking back, the public perception has changed. The reaction to Richard wasn't so much 
a reaction to the way he parented his daughters as a father. It was the way he went about bringing them to the forefront of tennis. Skipping juniors, being quote-unquote brash, the camera, putting up signs, welcome to the Williams show. It was an affront to how you were supposed to do things in tennis. And now we have the benefit of 20-odd years hindsight. Well, it seems to have worked out pretty well. Monica and Karoi Silvis were always seen as a very healthy parent and daughter pairing. And Melanie Molitor and Martina Hingis. I mean, they uh, they were indeed eccentric, but they did seem to work as a, as a coaching pair. The final thing that we'll mention here is kind of a theme of the 1999 season is Jennifer Capriati's comeback that it's starting to actually bring results. She had been away from the tour for a couple of years in the middle of the 90s due to things that we won't bring up. We don't need to bring that up on this on this show. Just due to a, a lot of troubles in her personal yeah. and professional life. She came back to the tour in 1996. It wasn't until 1999 that she started to have meaningful results on the tour, winning two titles, first in Strasbourg, and then at the end of the year in Quebec City, finishing the year ranked number 23. And so we talk about all these other players who are coming up in 1999, Venus Serena, Kim is Justine Enna, Amelie Moresmo, all these players who are doing well. But then we also have Jennifer Capriati, who doesn't really feature much in 1999, but she is going to have a big say at the top of the women's game in the next five years. And she's someone who occupies both the old and the new guard. Yeah, she's smack dab in the middle. Okay, enough preamble. Let's get into the tennis. The 1999 Australian Open, won by Martina Hingis, defeating Amelie Moresmo in the final. Just on paper, it's like, okay, expected. Martina Hingis winning in Australia again, third straight year. Wow, cute result, Amelie Moresmo, hatching and snatching. <laughs> but this tournament will forever be remembered for some almighty homophobic mess. Oof. It was the site of Amelie Moresmo's international coming out, which it's important to remember was a watershed moment in the history of women's tennis. And it was unfortunately the, uh, the site of some very ugly and very public backlash from some of her opponents. Davenport and Hingis tag-teamed her with some really nasty stuff. Walked back by Davenport and apologized for by Davenport, saying she was misunderstood. Hingis, not so much. Not so much. Early in the tournament, Emily sat in a press conference, basically said, listen, she wanted to get this out here. She has a girlfriend. She is gay. You, quote, you can write about her. And she was really the first women's tennis player to come out completely free of coercion. With Billie Jean, she was outed. Martina was a, a tape of her with a reporter was released and she didn't think the stuff was on the record. She was out as bisexual for a long time before she came out as gay. But Emily is the first to really take it upon herself. And she was in surely a safer era than those two women I mentioned. But it's it's a really important moment. And a moment that she realized later she wasn't 100% prepared for. Because while it was, quote-unquote, a safer time, she still had to deal with a lot of negative shit. Yeah. She beat Lindsay Davenport, and Lindsay was quoted as saying after the match, 
A couple of times, I mean, I thought it was playing a guy out there. The girl was hitting it so hard, so strong, and I would look over there and she's so strong in the shoulders. Those shoulders. You look at Emily Moresmo, her physicality, and you look at Lindsay Davenport and her physicality, and it's like, what? what is not adding up here for me? You, you notice they don't say her muscles, Emily's muscles, because she's as slender as most of these other women. Mm-hmm. You watch that Australian Open, and it's not like Emily Moresmo is out here hulking on steroids. That's not what they're objecting to. No. She's five foot nine. Lindsay is six one or six two. Lindsay is known to be one of the biggest, if not the biggest, hitters in the game. She's a power player. And not that this is okay, right? It's not okay to body shame anyone, including Lindsay Davenport. It was just so surprising coming from her. And this is happening after Emily has already come out at this tournament. And so there's a lot of coded stuff going on here. There's the history of conflating lesbian athletes with not being feminine enough. And by default, they're, they're too masculine. And then there's a, if you take it a step further, there's an element of, well, they're kind of cheating. Mm-hmm. And so Martina Hingis does take it to that place where you know it's going. She very famously said, quote, she's half a man. She's here with her girlfriend. And so this is butting up against a very old hysteria about women athletes, that they are too masculine, that their gender has been called into question, that they physically do not conform to what a woman should be. And this is coming from other women. Mm -hmm. Now, if you want to situate this against what's happening culturally, like you did at the start of the, the episode, this is a perfect example. With the explosion of young pop women, and again, this deep-rooted seediness of needing women athletes to look a certain way. I mean, this is the double bind women are in, right? Because you can be perfectly feminine, you can be the beautiful young girl that all of these older men were lusting after. That's not good enough, because then you're called a slut, you're called insignificant, silly, or you can be... Uh, a formidable athlete who is five foot nine, six foot two, who has muscles, who can hit a ball really hard. That's not okay either. Then you're a man. Like, there's really no winning for women in this culture. But it becomes a threat when these women threaten to win, right? When Amelie Moresmo becomes a threat to win a Grand Slam title, that's when everything becomes more heightened. You had Brenda Schultz McCarthy who could hit the ball off her serve harder than any woman on tour Mm. and who held a serve record for a long time but she wasn't out here competing in the second week of grand slams threatening to win the major titles right so it's cute you know that's that's a nice little novelty but the moment that somebody who's perceived to have more power than everybody else and they're able to present a game that allows them to win big matches, then hold on, this is going way too far. Like you're stretching the limits, the boundaries of femininity. We need to we need to rein this in. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting the way that sports writers wrote about Amelie during that Australian Open because, you know, we lived through watching Moresmo for many years. She was a touch player. She had more variety than almost anybody on tour. She wasn't a super duper power hitter all the time no she had a one-handed backhand she could play at the net she had finesse they allowed 
the visuals of who they thought they saw inform how they read her game. From a tennis perspective, and Lindsay spoke about this in her backtracking, the, the, the maleness of Moresmo's game was explained as her being able to generate more topspin than any of the other women. Mm. More so than necessarily raw power. Because right. if you watch her play, yes, she can flatten out the backhand and really rope that backhand. But when she's playing in these long rallies, you're getting variety upon variety upon variety. Right. When she won the Australian Open, I remember she was criticized for being too passive and winning against her opponent's errors. And I wonder now, in hindsight, how much that experience in 1999 set her back mentally in how she played her game on tour throughout the rest mm. of her career. It was. I mean, it's a lot for a 19-year-old to deal with. You mentioned, of course, that Lindsay did apologize. She actually sent a handwritten note of apology to Emily's hotel. Emily said it was, quote, very sincere, that she accepted the apology, bygones are bygones. Martina was a different story. Martina, even beyond the half a man comment, she was blatantly homophobic. Beyond just, you know, talking about her physicality, she said about Moresmo and her girlfriend, quote, they are hugging and kissing each other all the time. I'm just, okay, there's a limit. Now I think Moresmo got her lesson. She won't show affection as much. And this is after Martina beat her in the final. Now, Martina apologized directly to Emily on court, but she also said after the match that she didn't regret anything and that there was, quote, nothing to apologize for. Moresmo's coach at the time was quoted as saying that Emily did not buy Martina's apology and she told her as much in person. Kids, there was a day when it was acceptable to be this homophobic in public. Martina was criticized for this, but it's not like she was canceled. Moresmo now, at the end of all this, thinks it best to play Peacemaker, right? Because you've had this life-changing experience twofold at this tournament, coming out publicly as one of the most prominent gay athletes in the world. Then you have your big breakout professional moment making a Grand Slam final at 19 years old, and you have to deal with all this bullshit. At the end, she says of it that, quote, it's all a little bit silly. Which it, it is. It it's is. silly. It's stupid. It is. That... But she's the one who has to put the bow on it Yeah. to make it go yeah. to bed and make it okay for everybody else, right? This was her coming out moment both as a gay woman and as an athlete, her biggest success to date. And this is the kind of shit she's got to sift mm. through, right? As a, a really a kid, uh, do you remember what it was like to be 19? She seemed uh, uncommonly mature for her age. What I find really interesting is that Hingis and Davenport kind of wrote the headlines themselves. They were doing so much of the work for some of these reporters. In The Independent, a story that Ronald Atkin wrote was headlined, Hingis uses mind to beat muscle. And so again, there you see the total ignorance about Emily Moresmo's playing style. And you see this bifurcation of mind versus muscle that you'll see amplified, of course, when we talk about Venus and Serena throughout the years. Elegance, craft, and guile versus raw, brute power. This... As if these are mutually exclusive. No, but also Martina was comfortably in that pocket for years. Yeah. She was the craft queen. The one who had all the tools, all the skill sets, who didn't need all that power to win. She, 
She laughed at that power. And then she also laughed when that power bit her in the ass. Because you'll watch all these matches going back and she'll get aced like three in a row and then she'll just throw her arms up and just be completely disgusted <laughs> and just smile wryly. And for a while it was like, smile wryly because I'm still going to get you. <laughs> you can right. bomb those aces as much as you want. But at a certain point it becomes smile and disgust. Yeah, yeah. And of course she possessed gifts that nobody else did. Mm-hmm. And vice versa, right? She lacked things that other players had. But and my point here too is that she was the epitome of one half of that juxtaposition. Yeah, yeah. This was Martina's fifth slam in the last nine. You know, we're we're approaching Monica and Steffi kind of consistency here. Her 21st straight match win at the Australian Open. Didn't lose a single set in the 99 edition. And she's looking pretty good going into the season. She also won her fifth double slam in a row. This time with Kornikova. And they beat her singles opponent, Davenport and Zvereva. Mm -hmm. But you also get this other side of Martina Hingis that is coming out in full force in 1999. (laughs) This petulance, this what's described as brattiness. She's quoted as saying of Jana Novotna, with whom she won a bunch of Grand Slams in doubles the year before, that they broke up. You know why I should say Novotna is quoted as saying that they broke up (laughs) because Hingis said she was too old and too slow. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And her very next partner is Anna Kornikova. Yeah. So she she comes out with Kornikova. They deem themselves the Spice Girls. Very of the Mm. era, right? That pop connection again. But what's clear too to me is that Hingis is chasing this paparazzi glamour it girl thing like she ditches Novotna she needs the young starlet to be one half of the starlet group the starlet pairing Mm -hmm. and then later we see that pairing collapse famously with a a big row and Martina saying listen I'm the queen I think that's a quote or a paraphrase (laughs) but she was also lauded by the tennis establishment for being so willing to do any and all press to promote the game. Yes. Because as number one, that was promoting her. She was really upset that she did not get to wear her dress that she brought to the 1998 US Open because the best part about winning a Grand Slam is wearing the casual dress, the quote, casual (laughs) dress, and Uh, taking all the glamorous pictures with the trophy afterward. Believe it or not, at the same slam, we got Beadgate, the... Incredible controversy over Venus Williams' beads falling out during a point against Lindsay Davenport. So Emily Moresmo comes out early in the tournament. Beadgate happens in the quarterfinals. Lindsay goes and steps in it again in the semifinals after she loses to Moresmo. <laughs> and then that carries on with the final with Hingis. Like this, the, the off-the-court press from this tournament is just off the charts. Right. If you're trying to market women's tennis on drama alone, this is it. Venus was given a warning when the beads fell off the first time. And then she was given a point penalty for a hindrance when it happened a second time. And we're not actually here to discuss or debate the rules. No. Not super... I'm not actually really that invested in in the point penalty or anything like that. Because we know, as Venus told us, that they're selectively enforced based on who the umpire is. 
She said she spoke to the, what was it, the tournament director or... The tournament referee. She did research. No, a couple years back at Wimbledon because people were writing all these stories about her and her beads. And she was like, well, I wonder what does happen if it falls within. So she asked... And that was a different response from what she got in 1999. So she was like, I don't know if the rules have changed. I guess I need to be up more up on the rule changes. The weird thing about the whole Beadgate is that they pitted these two women against each other. Of course, they asked them both about it in press. But on ESPN, it's covered as if it's The View, right? It's Rosie O'Donnell and Elizabeth Hasselbeck. And there's like a split screen oh going back and forth. Vina says this. Lindsay says, well, you can see them. I, I, I don't know what you want me to say. It's, it's the rules. <laughs> we can laugh about it now. But at the time, it was just so outrageous and so heightened. Then you have Pam Shriver interviewing Venus and literally reading from the rule book. And Venus was just kind of sitting there like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. I mean, what can you say at that point? Meanwhile, there's no room in the discourse for what the beads signify. That it's a part of African-American culture to wear beads in your hair. That There's no scope, no room for that in tennis or the discourse. And so this one moment, it's emblematic of what's going on with the Williams sisters, quote-unquote, invading this white space. Mm-hmm. Today, I hope, we would ask the question of, well, is this rule really needing to be applied in this case? Shouldn't we be making some accommodation for one's culture? Uh, But that was not asked back then at all. Let's just uh, not make it the topic of several news cycles. Sure, but if you are to discuss it, discuss it in full. Why is she wearing these beads? Know Mm. a little bit about what's going on here. Because it's not just that people weren't ready for these two young black women to take over tennis. It's that they weren't welcoming as well. Right. Part of being welcoming to somebody in a new space is that you try and learn a little bit about them. I think they were probably told, like, don't ask about black people's hair. And they were just like, oh, okay, no, let's that talk has, about the beads then. That has never <laughs> been an obstacle for white people. Right. It has never. I'm surprised that somebody didn't try and touch the beads and see, oh. do a, a test as to how easily they fall out. Some kind of scientific study. All right, so we leave the Australian Open with Martina Hingis, very much the top player in the world. Indian Wells rolls around. At the time, it's called the Everett Cup, actually. We're in Palm Springs, and Serena Williams beats Steffi Graf. I found this very, to me, hilarious story leading up to Indian Wells. Apparently, Serena had injured her left hand in a skateboarding incident, because of course. As teenagers do. Uh She's a kid. And she continued to practice on it, continued to play on it, but her left wrist was really hurting when she hit her backhand. Supposedly, her forehand improved immensely because she was running around it in practice. And so after she beat Steffi at Indian Wells, you've got sports writers commenting on Serena Williams' improved forehand, saying that it rivals Steffi's. And we know that Serena's signature shot is her backhand. Mm Mm-hmm. But the forehand was good enough at that time for people to say, oh my god, it's as good as Steffi's. This was a stretch where Serena wins Indian Wells, like we talked about, and then Venus beats Serena at the following tournament in Miami. The French Open. Mercy. If the first slam of the year didn't deliver the drama, the French Open was going to try. I think you all know what happened at the 99 French Open. 
Steffi Graf beat Martina Hingis in the final for Steffi's final Grand Slam title. Steffi said that she was unprepared, but she makes history by becoming the first woman in the Open era to beat the top three seeds in a slam and goes on to win. And after which she called it the greatest win of her career. There are a lot of wins to choose from in that career. Mm-hmm. This one I would say was a bit unexpected. And right. I assume that there's a certain amount of pleasure to be gained from proving the haters wrong. <laughs> Who said she was washed up, she should, she couldn't come back, or she shouldn't come back. That the game was passing her by. Serena had just beaten her in Indian Wells. And while we expected Serena to be good and even great, she's still Serena Williams at that time. You're Steffi Graf. Right. But Steffi herself knew that she didn't have the type of preparation that she would like before a slam. And I think even she didn't predict that she would tally up all those important wins in that fortnight. The final is what most people talk about yeah. when when they think about this tournament. In the early 90s, it was all Monica and Steffi. Now she had all these other people to worry about. Monica beat her in Australia. Steffi beats Monica in the French Open semifinals. Martina Hingis beats Arantxa Sanchez Vicario in the other semifinal. So the two finalists from the 1998 French Open make it to the semis the following year, and they both lose. In the final, Hingis was up a set and a break, and then she saw a ball that she hit that she was convinced to be in and decided, well, I'm going to cross the net and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check it out. It is, to me, one of the most baffling things I've ever seen in this sport. She was up to love in the second set, had already won the first, and she, I mean, mentally just collapsed. She did something that you don't see in the sport. She walked to her opponent's side to argue a call. See, I don't think she collapsed in that moment. No. What? No, but what happened? I'll tell you what happened. Martina Hingis had this unrivaled self-confidence. I don't think I've ever seen a tennis player with as much self-confidence as Martina Hingis. And coming off of the Australian Open and feeling like, yeah, I, I am Martina again. If not better, she even said that I'm playing better than ever. Mm-hmm. And so she she felt she was playing this washed up old person that she should beat easily. <laughs> so it didn't matter. Like she had a point or two mm-hmm. to throw away if need be. She was going to prance and preen and make her point. But, you know, the thing that they say now, fuck around and find out. And she fucked around once too many in that final. And she found out yeah. because Steffi Graf, even at 30 years old, was not one to be played with. No, Steffi was incredulous. She could not believe what was happening. So Martina sits down in her chair and she refuses to go on. She only gets up when she's issued a code violation. She had already gotten one for racket abuse, so this was escalated to a point penalty. She gets back up. She goes up 3-1. Mm-hmm. She goes up 5-4. She's serving for the match. Right, so she she actually did not fall apart in that second set. But the crowd is firmly against her. She fails to serve it out. And in the third set, it's very clear that Martina is mentally and physically exhausted. Mm. And so that's when it falls apart for her. The French crowd, you know, can be uh, a bit rough, as we know. She, what I found fascinating about watching this match back, and we've talked about it before, is that she got out-finessed by Steffi in the third set. It was out everything. She hits the underarm serve on match point. That's the point when Steffi's just like, okay, what in the hell is going on right now? (laughs) She storms off court. Her mother convinces her to come back for the trophy presentation. But the public embarrassment and the 
the hit in the press that she gets from this match is really serious and really consequential, I think. The BBC wrote, quote, Miss Hingis, until a few weeks ago, the epitome of charm and good manners in the ego-fueled world of professional tennis has started to show another side. Now, this is some white nonsense. I, That's the I, only no, way to this explain is this. somebody who wasn't quite paying attention. It's some white nonsense. Because <laughs> what I'm telling you is, Martina was able to get away with things that she said and did because mm. she was she was the white it girl Yeah. at the top of the game. Like, you don't read the anger, you don't read the menace into things that she said and did because she's smiling all the time. She's just this innocent little girl, you know? But really, you read that and you're like, has this person ever watched tennis? Because we literally just had the Australian Open. <laughs> we just had that. The epitome of charm and good manners was... What she said about Emily Moresmo, charming and good-mannered. I know y'all have come to expect a certain number of dramatic readings per year. So we will do a bit of a dramatic reading from S.L. Price's piece on this whole fiasco. Where you will do the pros and I will do the quotes. Okay, so I'll set the scene. <clears throat> I'm S.L. Price. Hingis, the premier female player of her generation and the tour's standard bearer has revealed herself at 18 to be a thoroughly disagreeable brat. Hengist doesn't disagree. Later, she said she found nothing objectionable about her behavior during or after the match. She insisted that she had outplayed Groff and that... It's probably too hard to understand me the way I am, the way I play, because it just looks too easy. Asked if she had learned anything, Hengist said... Come on. I think I learned enough just by standing there, having to go back out to the ceremony. Just smile at everybody. I think I have a charisma. If the people don't see it, how my game is, that I don't deserve this tournament, okay. There are years to come. I'll show it to everybody that I can win this tournament. Right and wrong. Certain, there is no disagreement on the fact that Martina Hingis has charisma. She had charisma in spades. That doesn't mean that everybody liked it or liked her or she, that she was beyond criticism. She had charisma, uniqueness, and talent. She lost her nerve quite a few times. Yeah. So, unfortunately for Martina, she did not go on to win this tournament. She was very, very close to a calendar year Grand Slam in 1997, losing the French to Eva Maoli. She had this very famous, unfortunate collapse in 99. And But there is this, like you said, the confidence is incredible, right? Mm -hmm. And it's the kind of confidence that you need to become a player like her. You don't believe that anyone is better than you. You know who also felt that way? Who? Venus and Serena Williams. It, exactly. It did not read the same way and, to a lot of people. <laughs> yep. That is a theme of this mm -hmm. episode. This tournament was also the tournament where Steffi Graf and Andre Agassi kindled their love match. They both won this tournament and at the champion's dinner. And by the end of the season, they were the talk of tennis. Mm-hmm. We're going to be like Steffi and skip the entire season between the French Open and Wimbledon and just go right to it. At that time, it was only two weeks anyway. <laughs> it was very quick. It was a blip. Steffi finds herself back in the final. At this point, we go from, is Steffi Graf done? To Steffi Graf is like back and then some. Right. Like Steffi could, she could play another two years. And this whole business of changing of the guard, being run out of tennis by these women, this power game. She can withstand all that. At that point, it feels like Steffi was like, well, whatever. Okay. If you want me to get to the final, I'll get to the final. But she had said after the French Open that it was going to be her last French Open. And she reiterated that after Wimbledon as well. So as far as we knew at that time, 
Steffi was going to be retiring at the end of the 1999 season. Mm-hmm. Lindsay Davenport wins her second major, beating Steffi Graf in this final, 6-4, 7-5. But Lindsay did not lose her serve once in the final. Frederick Klein from the Wall Street Journal is quoted as saying, Through the prism of sports, the presence of Graf in the women's final could be considered a geriatric marvel. And I put this here on the agenda to stress to folks listening just how different tennis is now. Mm -hmm. This was a 30-year-old woman who was still clearly near the peak of her powers in the midst of this tumultuous changing of the guard moment, still able to put her hand up and swat a few around, you know? Right. Push a few back. But it was also unprecedented, really, save for Chrissy playing into her early 30s, still not really having a lot of success at the Grand Slam level at the back end of her career, and also Martina playing well into her 30s. Right. Save for those two, this was highly unusual. Martina was an aberration, right? That's that's why we're still talking about her success in her 30s, because she was one of the only ones at that time to have ever done that. Steffi was seen as an old person, as someone well past her expiration date at the age of 30. At this point, Lindsay is, she's flexing. Mm-hmm. She's no longer a hardcourt queen. She's flexed on everybody at Wimbledon. She's won that title. The promise of a career that folks doubted could happen because of fitness, it's happening. She had recently lost a bunch of weight before the 99 season. Watching her against Steffi in that final, you I mean, the purity of Lindsay's ball striking is something that we rarely, if ever, have seen on the women's game. It is beautiful to hear and watch Lindsay Davenport hit a tennis ball. Especially on the forehand. She hit mm. some forehand down the line ropes in that final <laughs> that were like, mercy. You give Lindsay Davenport enough time and the ball is sitting in the right slot and it's, it's curtains, mm-hmm. right? Martina Hingis wins the Australian Open. Steffi Graf wins the French Open. Lindsay Davenport wins Wimbledon. What started in January as maybe... A solidifying of Martina's position, there has been a landslide. Right. And not the Stevie Nicks or Dixie Chicks kind of way. <laughs> you know, like, the, the it's quicksand under her at this moment. Like, things are happening really quickly. She loses in the first round of Wimbledon after the fiasco at the French Open. 6-2, 6 love to Yelena Dokic. Who at the time was the lowest ranked player to beat a number one seed in a Grand Slam. Martina was appearing at Wimbledon without her mother. She decided they were going to part ways. She needed to see what it was like to play tennis on her own without Melanie there. And that split only lasted five weeks. Mm -hmm. But it was, you know, it was a glaring absence. It was probably a good moment for growth for her. Mm -hmm. And she said, I don't want another coach. I'm doing this on my own. She was still in touch with her mother by phone, but she was not in England for Wimbledon. And she was coachless on site for that tournament. This Wimbledon was a tournament of these teen phenoms. Yelena Dokic, of course, reaching the quarterfinals. Alexandra Stevenson and Mirjana Lucic both reaching the semis. Lucic had beaten Monica Seles in the third round. Tozia in the quarterfinal. Tozia was the previous year's runner-up to Yana Novotna. And it's a... I mean, looking back, it's bittersweet and it it feels that all of these women were touched by tragedy in some way you know Dokic and Lucic have talked a lot about the horrifying abuse 
that they suffered at the hands of a parent. Alexandra Stevenson, she became a name that was tabloid fodder because of who it turned out her father was. At this tournament, she made yeah. this run amidst all of this happening. And it, you know, unfortunately, we saw these three incredible stories break out at 99 Wimbledon. And all three of those players didn't live up to to what people had hoped they would. It was another 18 years before Mirjana Lucic, then Mirjana Lucic Baroni, made the semifinals of another Grand Slam. Yeah, and played Serena Williams in Serena Williams' last Grand Slam to this date. You know, I'm not going to say final. Last Grand Slam win. Most recent. Title. Yes. To date. Moving on from Wimbledon, we go into the uh, hardcourt summer in North America. And I said earlier, you can kind of see the U.S. Open series take shape because those names who were dominating that season became the stars of that early 2000s hardcourt swing. And not to spoil what happened at the U.S. Open, for those who don't know or don't remember, but only the woman who won lead-up hardcourt summer titles made the semifinals of the U.S. Open. (laughs) Four women. One, every single one of yeah. the lead-up hardcore events. And Martina Hingis was right there. She got right back on that wagon. Like, I was kind of surprised and super impressed by how quickly she righted that ship. Mm-hmm. Martina won San Diego and Canada, which at the time was called the Du Maurier Open, which is a cigarette brand in Canada. Mm-hmm. Lindsay Davenport won Stanford. She's a runner-up in New Haven quarters in LA and San Diego. Venus won New Haven, beating Lindsay, the runner-up in both Stanford and San Diego. And finally, Serena Williams wins the Acura Classic in LA. So that was it. Those Mm -hmm. were the North American hardcourt tournaments, and those four won all of them. At San Diego, Steffi shows up. She's intending to get through the rest of the season. She suffers an injury in her second-round match against Amy Frazier. Would have been her first match of the tournament has to retire in the third set, and then 10 days later calls a press conference to call time on her career. She said that she had intended to play out the rest of the season, but after Wimbledon, she was really struggling to find the motivation to even show up at a tournament. And when that happened in San Diego, it was just like, yeah, this is, this is it. Like, mm-hmm. I do not need to even go through the rest of the year. She said she had never felt that, that kind of apathy about moving on to the next tournament and that she realized i don't i don't want to play out the rest of the year and i think i'm done i don't enjoy this anymore and uh to be able to do that ranked number three in the world coming off some incredible wins that season that's amazing but what it does is it really passes the baton it it marks the end of a century it marks the end of heretofore maybe the greatest tennis career the world had ever witnessed and it really ushered in a new generation of players from robin finn of the new york times quote graf who originally intended to make the two million dollar chase championships her swan song has acknowledged that her exit from the tour was accelerated by her sense of no longer fitting in among the influx of teenagers a few of whom were mouthy millionaires before they even had won a title she had also said that she does not miss competing and that her 22 Grand Slam titles are sufficient testimony to her dedication to her sport. You see how the writer slipped in 
mouthy millionaires and made it seem like it was a paraphrase of Steffi. <laughs> she would never say she did not say no, that. But no. it but the writer made it sound like she said it. End of an era, really, truly. Right. I've said before you rarely see a changing of the guard this clear and and this significant. What was interesting to me watching the highlights of that Wimbledon final, Steffi was introduced as chasing the all-time record of 24 by Margaret Court really? in 1999. Mm. So we've always tried to pinpoint <laughs> the origin story yeah. of this myth. And perhaps it started in 1999 once Steffi won again at the French Open, made the final at Wimbledon, because she gets to the final at Wimbledon and this could be 23. Mm-hmm. So you have to add some more stakes to what she's going for at that tournament, right? Yeah. We get to the US Open. A Williams has arrived, but it's not Venus. And again, Hingis is left holding the runner-up trophy after losing 6-3, 7-6. But Martina's not done, right? She had an incredible win over Venus in the semifinals. And it was so devastating to Venus that Orsine called it, quote, almost like a death. Much has been written about Venus's, uh, what, comportment, appearance in that final, watching her sister do what she so desperately wanted to do, which Venus would uh, accomplish, you know, just the next year, mm-hmm. of course. I mean, in a lot of ways, it was a tag team effort, right? Venus yeah. battered and bruised Martina <laughs> before that yes, final. Yes, But Serena had a very not easy road to that final. She... Very eloquent. Yeah, very not easy. <laughs> I think... <laughs> you like that? She lost the first set in three consecutive matches against Little Kim Clijsters... Conchita Martinez and Monica Seles. She went three sets with Lindsay Davenport on Friday. The final was on Saturday. Martina also went three sets with Venus on Friday. Finals on Saturday. They both should have been tired. But it appeared during that final that Martina was the tireder. The tire... Well... (laughs) I did that just for you. (laughs) (laughs) To see if I was paying attention? Yeah, yeah. Another gem from Robin Finn. Quote... Now that she has developed the confidence to match her muscles. I presume Finn goes on to say something else, but it's the, the that particular phrasing yeah. that you're highlighting I here. I chopped that out. This obsession with muscles, right? We saw it with Emily. We see it with Serena. It's that you can't be mentally strong, artistic, graceful, and be muscular at the same time. And also, I don't recall a time when Serena lacked confidence to match the muscles. It's just It was a weird construction. But in that final, you see Serena exposing what Martina lacks. And you also see Serena showing some things that she doesn't always get credit for. So I'll, I'll expand. Martina famously had worked on her fitness a ton over that summer. And she came into the US Open markedly more fit than she had previously. But in the final, Serena's power really overwhelmed her and, and really ground her down physically. And when I say that Serena showed things that she doesn't always get credit for, there's this narrative, of course, that Patrick Muradoglu introduced variety into her game. We know, of course, it's not true. Like, if you're a real observer of the sport, you know it's not true. But I was amazed watching this final again. The the kind of variety and the kind of grace that existed in Serena's game, even back then when she was 17, the way that she could curl her cross-court forehand the precision she had with the backhand down the line, the command that she has of her serve placement. Like, all of these things take strategy, they all take a a level of uh, 
I don't like to use the word grace, but there's there are aesthetics to Serena's game as a 17-year-old that I feel like a lot of people refuse to see. Right. You mentioned the backhand down the line. Rewatching that final, the way Serena sprinted into those backhand down the lines and threw her entire body into that hip rotation on the run. I would have fallen over and like a million times, even rem- <laughs> even just trying to attempt something like that. Mm. It was the eye-popping shot of that final for me. Like, it was crazy what she did on the backhand down the line in that match. Right. Because both Venus and Serena are getting themselves in positions to hit these shots because they were so fast. Martina Hingis, to her credit, gave her opponent her due that day. She said afterward that she could not read Serena's game in that final. This is the, the great tactician, mm. right? The, the strategist, Martina Hingis, said, I had trouble reading what she was going to do. You saw it in some of those return mm-hmm. games. Martina leaning to the forehand for the serve down the line, yeah. and Serena popping aces out wide to her backhand and back-to-back points, and all Martina can do is just shake her head. Serena Williams beats Martina Hingis to win her first Grand Slam title, beating her sister to the Grand Slam finish line, getting that slam title first, and having to sit there and watch it, while I'm sure Venus was super happy for her sister. Like, this was flipping the script a little bit. You know, this was an adjustment for a lot of people involved. Great final, great gowns, beautiful gowns, all that stuff. But there was also a lot of mess early in the tournament, just like at the yeah, Australian yeah. Open. I think this was the first week we got some of the most memeable content in women's tennis in our lifetimes. The formal education comment, which, as you said, was the body serve intro for several years, I believe. She's always been the type of person, she says things, just speaks her mind. I guess it has a little bit to do with not having a formal education. This all came about because Richard Williams said Venus and Serena were going to reach the final of the U.S. Open. Of course, the top players are going to be asked about what Richard said. And Martina said, they always have a big mouth. They always talk a lot. But I like that. It's more pressure on them. Whether they can handle it or not, that's the question. Martina always took the bait in those days. Serena's response was... An even more savage drag than I remember, because I don't often hear the last part. And you can read that for us. You know, she says, I guess it has a little bit to do with not having a formal education. And then she goes on to say, but you just have to somehow think more. You have to use your brain a little more in the tennis world. I mean, Serena absolutely cleared her. Not only did she get the jab in about the formal education... She you was, just told me last night that you hate the word jab. No, I hate the word jab applied to vaccines. I think it's corny. Just vaccines? I think it's extremely corny. I hate okay. it. She, you know, got the little dig in about formal education, but then she said, you have to think more. You have to use your brain a little more in the tennis world. Whether she was aware of it or not, in the moment, this is attacking the foundation of the Hingis versus Williams rivalry. Of the whole muscle versus brains theme in women's tennis, in not only in women's tennis, in sport in general, that black, well, black athletes were, participation in sport. you know, black athletes are supposed to be athletic in a way primal, and they weren't the quarterback, they weren't the strategist, the be- athlete. Because they were incapable right. of being that. We spoke of Martinez as it being kind of gloom and doom for her 
through large stretches of this season, but she ends the year having made three slam finals, one more than she did the year before, and again winning in Australia. So like, while it hasn't been as good as she would have wanted it, it's still not bad. (laughs) Right. Her career takes a different turn, obviously, but she still spends 74 more weeks, ranked number one, reaches three more Grand Slam finals, wins a bag of other titles. And a bag of money. Yeah. But we see her leave the game at a very young age, in her early 20s, with persistent injuries. And folks consistently speculated whether she was literally hit out of the game. Like, all those years Mm -hmm. of having to play counter-puncher, withstand the barrage of ground-stroke bullets from all comers, whether that forcing her to do too much on the tennis court that her body could handle, if if that was what really did her in. And there's no way to know. She came back, obviously, as a singles player, reached the top 10 again, continued as an absolutely world-class, one of the greatest doubles players probably ever. She won double-digit Grand Slam doubles titles when she came back for the second time. So the Grand Slam season is done. Let's talk about the greatest Fed Cup team ever assembled. I don't think it's too much to, to say that, right? I don't know. I haven't done the research. I know this is a popular opinion, <laughs> yeah. but I haven't checked all Fed Cup teams across all borders. Right. <laughs> like. The uh, the 99 U.S. Fed Cup team, captained by Billie Jean King, featured Lindsay Davenport, Venus and Serena Williams, Monica Seles, the and Chanda Rubin. Those four being the world's numbers two through five. Lindsay had finished the previous year number one. All of those four players had previously or would become number ones and multiple Grand Slam singles champions. Venus and Serena played doubles throughout the year on the Fed Cup. Lindsay, in the final, they play Russia in the final. Lindsay extends her unbeaten streak to 12 in Fed Cup, beating Lehotseva. But this is also the the start of kind of the, the Russian revolution in women's tennis, right? You have Anna Kornikova, you have Lehotseva, who was Russia's top player for a while. And then you have Dementieva, who was qualifying for slams this year. She was starting to bubble on the women's tour. And actually in the final against the U.S., Dementieva beat Venus in Russia's only winning rubber. I don't know why that needed to be mentioned. You know, it's just (laughs) these are signs of things to come, right? Mm. These were the rumblings of the Russian Revolution in women's tennis. Okay. So Lindsay secures the WTA Player of the Year award even though she made one Grand Slam final. This is a tough call, right? She and she and Martina were the title leaders. They both won seven. They both won one slam. Lindsay did win the uh, the WTA championships, but her head-to-head against Martina was 3-0. and On the year. And I think that's probably what put her a nose ahead of Martina. Prize money in 1999, five women earned over $1 million dollars. The top five women in the rankings, Martina Hingis, Lindsay Davenport, Venus Williams, Serena Williams, and Mary Pierce. Didn't really hear much about Mary Pierce on this episode. No. But she still finished the year number five. And she would have her big, big signature career win the following year at the French Mm -hmm. Open. But, you know, Mary Pierce found herself in the second week of slams. She had title wins. You you see that name sprinkled across the 99 season quite a bit. Interesting tidbit, the prize money that the woman won for each individual slam, it differed 
greatly. Mm-hmm. The Australian Open paid out $370,000 to the winner. The French Open, 574000 Wimbledon, 614000 And the U.S. Open, 750 k This is U.S. dollars. And so it goes from least to most as the season progresses. The year-end rankings were kind of a mix of old and new. Martina finished the year number one with a, a comfortable margin this time. She would finish the following year as number one as well and spend a lot of 2001 as number one. Followed by Lindsay Davenport, then Venus Williams and Serena Williams at three and four. So by the end of 1999, Venus and Serena have arrived. Yes. They're here. They're top four seeds. In 2000, Venus is going to take off. That summer that Venus Williams had in 2000 is a stuff of legend. And number five, Mary Pierce. Number six, Monica Salas. Seven, Natalie Tosia. Eight, Barbara Shett. Nine, Julie Allard de Cougie. And number 10, the Australian Open finalist, Amelie Moresmo. Before we go, I just want to end with a few little fun facts about things that happened throughout the season, specifically at each Grand Slam. In Australia, Serena went out in the third round to Sandrine Testud, 9-7 in the third. So when you quoted Serena after that as having said, you know, I'm tired of losing to people I should not be losing to. That's probably who she meant, even though Sandrine was the number 14 seed at that tournament. At the French Open, after playing in the Australian Open final, Martina Hingis and Amelie Moresmo met in the second round because there were only 16 seeds at the slams at that point, and Amelie was not ranked within that range. So she was just floating around for any old person to stumble upon in the early rounds, and we got that rematch of the Australian Open final, Martina winning again at Wimbledon. Not only did Steffi Graf make the final in singles, but she made the semifinals in mixed doubles. Steffi played mixed doubles with John McEnroe at the 1999 Wimbledon Championships. And the story goes that John was kind of mad when Steffi had to pull out to preserve herself for the singles final. And the final thing I'll add, you mentioned that Serena beat Kleisters in the third round of the US Open. This was a pretty stellar first two Grand Slam events for Kim Clijsters. She made the fourth round of her very first slam at Wimbledon, losing in the fourth round to Stephanie Graf. And then in her second at the US Open, she she loses 7-5 in the third to Serena Williams. And then she goes on to win her first title in the fall. I feel like this has kind of become a Martina Hingis episode. (laughs) And what I've learned from this season is that she was an integral part of a lot of things yeah. that happened this season. On and off court, but what we really see fomenting during the 99 season is what many feared and many expected, the the dominance of Venus and Serena Williams. Serena was the first one to strike at the US Open, but as you said, Venus goes on to that 30-match win streak in the summer of 2000. Winning Wimbledon, the Olympics, and then the US Open. And then winning Wimbledon and the U.S. Open the following year, achieving the number one ranking. Finally, Mm -hmm. there was a lot of discussion about the ranking system back then when Venus didn't get it. And then 2002 into 2003, they play each other in every single Grand Slam final during the Serena Slam. That is one of the things that Mm -hmm. will, of all the Venus and Serena records, I think the the two that are most crazy to me are 
the 14-0 in doubles finals and the fact that they played each other in four straight Grand Slam finals. But this 99 season is so remarkable because of because it's on the cusp of things, right? We see Steffi Graf win her final slam after having won her first in 1987. Monica Seles winning her final match against Steffi. Martina winning her final slam. You yeah. know, we don't yeah. talk about it like that because it wasn't the end of her career. But really, in January, yeah. Martina Hingis won her final Grand Slam event. And I don't think anybody expected that. No. She definitely didn't expect no. that. I didn't expect that. As mm-hmm. much as I saw what was in front of me, I thought that she could easily snatch one here or there. Oh, yeah. Like the stars aligned. Well, she had four chances against Capriotti yeah. in 2002. Serena winning the U.S. Open. And even then... It wasn't clear that Serena was going to be the dominant player on the tour, that she was going to be the GOAT. Venus was right there, right? Venus won four slams, outpaced her sister by three (laughs) after 2001. Serena didn't win another one until uh, June 2002 at the French Open. But that season just encompassed so much of what we know about the old guard and this new kind of internet generation. In tennis. And now, you know, now those women are old. They're 40 and that 41. So but <laughs> Bless Monica Seles for three more years. She continued to slug it out with mm-hmm. these women and put her best foot forward. And continue to reach second weeks and mm-hmm. slams. That brings us to the end of this retrospective, the end of our debut episode for season eight. I hope you enjoyed going down memory lane. For some of you, this may have happened before you were born. Bless you. This season happened when we very much have memories that we can remember. (laughs) But I believe that a season like this can and will happen again on the WTA. Okay. Thank you to everybody who's contributed to our GoFundMe. It is still open. You can still send us a little something-something if you you feel compelled. It is the type of thing that allows us to do this kind of episode more often. And... So if you've enjoyed this episode, wink, wink. (laughs) I'm Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. For all things BodyServe related, go to linktree.com slash thebodyServe. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) 